0: Hey there, welcome to Night School, and we got a Good Thursday episode here. First Friday. It's been a while since I've highlighted Thursday, celebrated a Good Thursday. Good Thursday. You've heard of Good Friday? Well, welcome to Good Thursday, which is to say every Thursday. And what's on my mind this morning is points of reference, and the way that points of reference shape what you see out in the world and how you interpret the world And how it's very easy to forget that other people might not have the same exact points of reference that you do. Especially if they're niche. Especially if if they're derived from some kind of nuanced interest in a given subject that not everybody has an interest in. Because, I mean, it's amazing that we have as many common points of reference as we do. Beyond just survival. Yeah, of course a common point of reference is like, do you eat food? I always think about that idea of like the the world traveler who goes and he meets some other culture for the very first time. These cultures have never interacted, and they're trying to find common ground. And it's like, do you eat food? Oh, you say you say words too. You know, it's like you can, you can always find points of reference like that. There, that sort of commonality of just like. Oh, your body requires the same things that mine does? But even in that, even within that, like, you know, you think about the big one is like, oh, they eat different things. Oh, you eat bugs? And the people who eat bugs are like, yeah, of course we do. We've been eating bugs for thousands of years. We've been eating bugs for thousands of years. You know, and and to them, though, it's weird that you don't eat bugs. While to you, it's weird that they eat bugs. So... You can take that point of reference for granted, the fact that, you know, our, con- our concept of what is edible or palatable is entirely different from somebody else. But it is amazing that we have as many common points of reference as we do and that we can have as many discussions as we have, that we're not all in some kind of vacuum. But so much of it comes down to, you know, the family you were born into and the sorts of things your parents talk to you about Because growing up, I watched a lot of Nick at Night. And at that time, I guess early 90s, the shows that were on Nick at Night were mostly from the 70s when I think back about it. There was I Love Lucy, which was older. I watched a lot of I Love Lucy. But there was also New Heart. Both New Heart and the Bob Newhart show. I watched both of those. Uh, There was Taxi, Happy Days... And so I I used to watch it every single night. I mean, it was really my favorite thing to watch. I think I watched more Nick at Night reruns of old TV shows than I ever did cartoons. I mean, I never got up early enough on Saturday mornings to watch many Saturday morning cartoons. So I just watched Nick at Night weeknight reruns of old shows. And it's not like I was trying to be some old-timey kid. Oh, we got an old-timey kid here. All he does is watch old TV shows and uses old phrases. No, it's not like I was trying to be... It's not like I was LARPing as an an old-timey man. But I was very interested in these reruns of shows from decades before I was born, because it was a different world. You know, it's watching a different world play out. Yeah, it's a sitcom. And in the same way, I wouldn't tell somebody now that, oh, a sitcom from 2010 is an accurate depiction of life in 2010. You know, of course not. Although I would, you know, I, I, I don't know, I would lean toward the idea that a sitcom from the 1970s is a more accurate portrayal of 1970s American culture than 2010 sitcoms. In part because 2010 sitcoms just seem so dead. So dead. They do, though. Something seems culturally dead. I mean, the phenomenon of sitcoms, the relevance of sitcoms, I don't think anybody would argue that that hasn't faded dramatically, especially with the creation of the internet. You know, but at a time where sitcoms were, you know, one of the main things that everybody in the culture watched, that alone makes them significant. The fact that many people. We're watching the same thing at the same time every week. And whether that thing perfectly illustrated what it was like to live at the time doesn't matter as much as the fact that everybody was absorbed in it. Everybody was watching it. Um, Everybody had it as a point of reference. The fact that people in the 1970s could watch Happy Days and they all had that common interest together, that's significant. You know, and of course, Happy Days depicted the 50s, early 60s. And I was thinking about this, actually, you know, because obviously Every Night's a School Night highlights music from that era. And I was always interested. I always enjoyed the aesthetic of the 50s and 60s, early 60s. But I don't know that it was informed by Nick at Night. Oh, you know, if it weren't for Nick at Night, I would never have done Every Night's a School Night, although that's possible. That's possible. I wouldn't say it's a direct influence. Cuz those shows didn't those shows weren't musical. Like yeah, Happy Days had its sort of rock and roll intro song every once in a while they would play something, but that isn't even really my interest. I'm not even interested as much in that sort of rock around the clock style of rock and roll. And my interest in Doo-Wop and that sort of music. I mean, I can think of certain experiences. I, I remember being on a family road trip somewhere and having to go inside, I guess it was a McDonald's or a Burger King, a fast food place. And in the bathroom, they were playing Richie Valens' Donna, I believe. Although I, this is sort of crossing, I don't know, the streams are crossing with another memory where, where I remember going into a place where they were playing the Everly Brothers' Dreams and uh you know i'm trying to which i don't as much as that's one of my favorite songs is that even the title dreams uh it's one of my favorite songs and i don't even know what the proper title is i just know how it goes but anyway a couple experiences like that of hearing music from that era in odd moments and being shocked at just the stunning beauty of it you know so Richie valens donna Getting into Buddy Holly, all that stuff was pretty foundational for me. And I wouldn't connect it to watching Nick at Night. But I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think it's all connected. Again, these are all points of reference that I had growing up. And in watching Nick at Night too, it wasn't just that I watched Nick at Night and absorbed what I was seeing, this sitcom representation of earlier eras. It was that my mom would be there with me, too. She would usually be doing her crossword puzzle. Speaking of points of reference, you know, that'll really show you what your points of reference are in this world, trying to do a crossword puzzle, uh, but, uh, and she would explain certain things to me, so her points of reference, the things that she thought were relevant were part of that experience, and so she would explain certain references on the shows to me, And Not the entire time. It's not like she was sitting there being like, well, this means that. Oh, when he said that, he was referring to this event. Oh, well, President Eisenhower did this. You know, it's not like she was doing that, but it would just be little asides. She would make little asides that would give me more context. And so it wasn't just watching Nick at night. It was also having a mom who was born in 1948 who was alive during this entire period who felt the need to refer to certain things. And that does shape who you are, that does shape how you see the world, and that goes on your entire life, you know, and we're living in a time now, though, where there's such an abundance, I don't want to say an overabundance, let's just say an abundance, it's not up to me to decide it's an overabundance, it's an abundance of information, and the issue with an abundance of information is that it's very easy to think that you know everything that matters. Because you have so many different ways of absorbing information, it's very easy to think that you're getting, if not all of it, then all of it that matters, and that the things that you're not absorbing don't matter. It's very easy to believe that in our world today, where you have so many information devices. And I don't know that people haven't always felt this way. Like when books became widely available magazines, newspapers, when all of these sources of information became available, I can readily believe that people thought that they were getting all of the information that mattered. But now it's its only been heightened. The fact that you have access to as much information as you want at any given time, and it's constantly evolving. It's very easy to think that you are getting everything and anything that matters, and more importantly, that things outside of that don't matter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to remind yourself of that. That just because you're not aware of it, or it doesn't, it's not coming to you through the sources that you typically pay attention to, that it's somehow less valuable. And anytime someone has a very nuanced interest in a certain subject... They find more value in that than other things, than other interests. And that's just something that happens. I mean, there's no I don't think there's any real explanation for why you are drawn to something. Why does this thing interest you? I mean, I could break down what I like about certain things. I can break down maybe what drew me in. But I really can't explain why it is that I'm interested in a given subject or certain information for that matter is more relevant to me personally, especially information that doesn't affect my life in any way. You know, like why did the mafia, for example, like captivate my brain the way it did way back when and why have I been able to sustain that interest? I don't know. I really have no idea. I mean, we, we all know why the mafia is an interesting subject. They're entertaining movies. But why did I get into these weird details related to the history of it? Why do I look up genealogical records of mafia members? You know what I mean? Like, why did I take particular interest in that? And why didn't I burn myself out? You know, you think about that and it's just, it's just a little odd because I wouldn't be able to explain it at all. And, you know, and that's that's an interest that's very inward because there aren't very many people that you can talk to about that stuff. Yeah, you can talk to somebody about Goodfellas. Hell, heck of a movie. Oh, it's just a heck of a movie. You know, you can talk to somebody about stuff like that. But there are very select people that you can actually talk in depth with about some of the, you know, the finer details of it. Uh, so you, you know, and I have people, you know, I've met people over the years who I can do that with, but it is rare. But I wouldn't assume that everybody has that point of reference, even though I've focused on it now for, I don't know, 16 years, uh, pretty heavily. I wouldn't assume that anybody understand would understand some of the points of reference I would make. Um, but I forget, too, about other things. You know, I think about underground music and culture. When I say underground, what I mean by that is just stuff that chose a deliberate aesthetic. It's not about popularity. It's not about something whether it's it's sort of the subcultures it came from. It has nothing to do because like, I mean, when I was growing up, people had this idea: if you made reference to the underground, it basically meant something that's not popular. Dot dot dot. Yet. So it's something that was just waiting for its chance to be in the spotlight. And uh, when when I say underground, what I'm referring to are lesser-known subcultures that produced music that had a slim chance of ever having any kind of mainstream appeal. And particularly the culture built around that, the, the aesthetic. I mean, you think about, you know, Choosing, because when I mean, you think about Xerox, for example, Xeroxed photocopied artwork, which is common, and it was just the standard, it, if you were making your tape, if you were making your own demo tape, if your band was making a demo tape, it was the only option available, we've got to Xerox our cover, and it's going to be grainy, high contrast, black and white, so on a practical level, that's what we can do. But then a a culture developed around that where that became a desirable aesthetic. And people are still using that aesthetic. And it's not that grainy black and white Xeroxed artwork can't become popular. It's that a certain culture was built around that. A subculture was built around that that preferred that. Even though it was done somewhat out of necessity. Oh, we want to make a tape. It's 1982, and we want to make a tape. You know, what are our options? Oh, we can Xerox our art. We can create this crude collage, whatever it is. And then over time, people developed a taste in that. And people have a preference for that in some cases. Mm -hmm. Same thing for production value. You know, people who are analog purists, people who like a more raw production value rather than something glossy and digital. Although each era, you know, gets attached to its own things, you know, you see where glitch artwork used to be sort of this new, like, I remember in the 90s, probably earlier, but I particularly remember in the 90s where you'd see some, maybe it's an electronic album, an experimental album, and it has this, by today's standards, very bad, glitchy artwork, like something, you just ran an effect You ran a Photoshop effect, maybe a Photoshop effect, but it's just some sort of very cheap, digital, abstract image. And at the time, that was impressive in a way because nobody could do that before. Like, I have my own experience of getting some sort of software program for my family's first computer. It wasn't Photoshop, but it was something like that. It was some sort of digital imaging software. And you could just, you know, you think about the emboss effect. You think about these different effects that are sort of, you know, they're old hat to us now, but it seemed so impressive just to run an effect over an image. And anybody who used that, anybody who has used computers knows exactly what that is and considers it cheap. Like, oh, look at that ugly emboss effect that you put over a photo. But at the time, it was like, whoa, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this. All I do is click a button, and it changes this into a a weird, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, so so it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the effects, though. It was sometimes these digitally created abstract images. And I don't even know how much actual aesthetic appeal they had. I don't even know that the people making these things liked them it was just the fact that you could do them and they hadn't existed before and then that you know bled into this sort of glitch aesthetic where especially experimental or electronic albums used artwork that was deliberately glitchy it was deliberately a digital a digital glitch and the music too you know some of the music too would play on that of audio glitches things that were undesirable but using that undesirable idea as something to celebrate or highlight to do something with it. And it's not different from the Xerox thing where, you know, you think about if you were photocopying something because you need a replication of it, like a document or an image, if you're doing it for some sort of professional project or an academic project, not some art thing, not some album cover. If you were using a Xerox machine, you want less noise on that image. You don't want a bunch of dots. You don't want the letters of the words to be faded. You don't want the image to be almost unrecognizable. So you're not looking for that. That's a glitch. you know. Even though glitch has taken on this digital connotation... You know, a Xerox machine that produces analog noise, and the ink is running low, so the text is faded, you can barely read it. You know, all of that is, it was very undesirable, but it was a glitch. It was an analog glitch, and then, as I was talking about, as people started to celebrate the aesthetic of something like a Xerox machine, of something like a photocopy, they actually found those glitches desirable, and now you still see it, where people will release artwork, Uh, Not just demo tapes, not just that kind of thing, but entire albums where the artwork is all this worn, glitchy, noisy Xerox effect. And they'll even reproduce that digitally. It's not even just that they... Because, I mean, as time has gone on, Xerox machines became digital themselves, and the noise they produced has a certain digital appearance to it. It doesn't look the way it did. It doesn't have that ancient look. So what you end up with is people trying to recreate that digitally. And I even saw something, something was recommended to me. It was, you know, like an advertisement, like a targeted ad. And it was some guys who, they sell fonts and, I guess like, like overlays, you can put over your image to make it artificially look like it's Xeroxed or worn in some way. And so you can, so people are trying, people are making, you know, small businesses out of this sort of thing because it's a desirable aesthetic to some people, even though all of this stuff was undesirable to the people who created the equipment and the people who were trying to photocopy documents and paperwork and pages out of academic books, you know, things like that, where you didn't want it to be muddy. You didn't want it to be worn You wanted it to be as accurate as you could possibly get through a machine that makes copies, that makes black and white copies. Um, And in in talking about this, I I recognize, I'm becoming very aware that this might not be a point of reference for everybody. And it's exactly what I mean, where like some people might simply not be aware of the fact that there's a whole subculture, multiple subcultures, interlocking subcultures, that celebrate Xeroxed artwork in 2020. Some people just might not be aware of that, and that's important for me. You know, if I'm talking to somebody, a a random person, about artwork or something, being like, oh, well, you know, like, the Xerox effect? You know, someone might not really know what I'm talking about with that. But in the things I paid attention to, it's just obvious, And I have certain friends who have interests that are similar to me, but slightly different in some ways. Like friends who are into movies. And they'll make reference to directors and people. And I just, I have no clue. To them, it's completely normal. It's part of what they read about. They watch these things. These things. These things that they call movies. And I'm just, I've never been interested in film. So it's like, oh, you know, you can talk to me about... You know the most famous directors, maybe, and oh, Francis Ford Coppola. Are oh, you talking about? Fr- oh, is he like Francis Ford Coppola? But when it comes to you know horror movie directors or anything like that, I'm I'm gonna have no idea what you're talking about. It's just not an interest of mine. But to somebody who is obsessed with horror movies, it's pretty obvious. You know, yeah, I know who John Carpenter is. But uh, you know, as someone who has no interest in film, really. You know, when someone starts talking about that, I'm suddenly just completely out of my depth. But to somebody who's into that, it just makes sense to be able to refer to that. And some people are really good at bridging that gap. Some people are aware of the fact that other people might not know about a given subject, but they manage to bridge that gap anyway. They know how to integrate it. And that's amazing when someone can do that. And it's difficult to do. Because you have to be aware of the fact that you're talking about something that is niche or nuanced and that other people might not understand it. But again, I want to go back to this abundance of information now and how the more abundant information is and easily accessible it is, the more overloaded you are with information, the easier it is to think that you are getting most, if not all, of the information you need. And when you look at the the way that certain parameters have been set up, and I f- that's the most polite way to put it, parameters, certain parameters have been placed around the information that you can access. And you can see where Wikipedia has grown stricter and stricter over the years, and they feel the need to make judgment calls. Because, you know, I was in college, 2004, 2008. And at the time, professors said, Don't you dare cite Wikipedia. Don't you dare cite Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Uh, because it was just not seen as reputable. It was not seen as, as it wasn't vetted enough. And then Wikipedia did a lot to legitimize itself. And I'm not anti-Wikipedia at all. I I think it's a wonderful resource. But I started to notice it making more judgment calls. Not just as far as what's relevant or what belongs on Wikipedia, because you used to be able to find a lot more articles, and I'm not sure what the motivation was for removing them. They decided that certain things weren't well-known enough, certain things weren't culturally relevant enough so they remove them. And I'm not sure why that is. I understand that not every single human being needed to be on Wikipedia. Because I know that that was a thing that was happening where random people, you know, in this moment of grandiosity would create a Wikipedia page for themselves. And uh, it was funny, like this kid that I was friends with, junior high sort of in high school he was like one of the only other guys who was into metal when i was that age and we used to go to concerts together i have nothing bad to say about him you know but uh he ended up being in some you know somewhat well-known bands that i'm not even familiar with these i don't even know what they are like metalcore maybe i don't even know what these bands are i don't even know what these bands are but i remember he ended up with a wikipedia page and I remember reading it out of curiosity, and it was clear he had written it himself. It was funny, because it, it went into all these details about his childhood and influences, and it was it was as if someone was writing their own resume in the third person. And I think a lot of people did that, which is why they removed these things, which is why they cut down on the number of articles they had. I mean, it makes sense. It's not like I don't understand the logic there. But there was an, there was an issue where Wikipedia... I mean the term that people use, the, the buzz phrase, the buzzword is gatekeepers. And you hear that thrown around all the time. I don't know when that's that became something that you read constantly. It's like all these other catchphrases, buzzwords. But that's what they do. I mean, they're gatekeepers. Anytime that you're controlling information, you're of course a gatekeeper. And I understand the need to have some standards. I understand that completely. It's not like I think it should all be a free-for-all. And they were interested in legitimizing themselves as, as a source. You know, as I mentioned, my college professors being like, no Wikipedia, no Wikipedia. Um, I, you know, I, they didn't like that. The people running Wikipedia didn't like that they were seen, you know, they were just uh, tossed off to the side as this online resource that anybody could edit and was not a reputable source that you could cite. So I understand tightening the standards, I understand making it more difficult to edit certain pages to limit the amount of abuse. You know people uh you know making jokes, messing around with pages, spreading misinformation. I understand that, but you at some point though they started making these bold declarations. Like you go to a page and it says this is considered a pseudoscience. They started branding things with this scarlet letter. It's not that that shouldn't be part of the conversation, but they very deliberately started to brand certain ideas in a certain way, and that's only increased. That has only increased, and it's gone hand-in-hand with increasing censorship and limitations on free speech, and that's why it's only a polite, word when I say parameters. They've placed certain parameters. But the reality is, it becomes, you know, a limitation on free speech, if not deliberate, explicit censorship in some cases. And that's just, I don't know. uh, I don't know. I don't know what they hope to get out of that approach. Because to me, that's just such a, a downhill approach and you don't get good things from that. But you do have to maintain a balance because I understand standards. I understand caution. But yeah, it's, I, I mean, I don't envy them. I don't envy the position these people are in. Um, and But an idea like Wikipedia, an entity like Wikipedia plays into what I'm talking about exactly because because you have access to this thing that is just filled with an abundance of information, more than you could ever read about in a lifetime. There's more information on there than you could ever read about in a lifetime, even within the parameters they've created. So it's easy to think that everything you need to know, all of the points of reference that you need are there. And when you look something up, like if you do a Google search... It's like you're hanging out with your friends and you do a Google search. You heard of Google, right? Uh, you know I need that I need Google explained to me i don't I don't get that reference what's What is Google exactly? Um, no, but it's one of those things where you know if you do a search for something and a Wikipedia article doesn't come up, it's sort of strange. Because Wikipedia is sort of your filter. It's it's sort of like the world's filter where it's like if something isn't on Wikipedia, it's not a point of reference that you need to know. And of course, I don't think that way, but there's a little part of me that does. I mean, there's a little, there's a moment where I'm like, oh, well, uh, there's no Wikipedia article, huh? And to th- if I'm thinking that way, I can only imagine what the average person thinks when they're trying to find information about something but it's not available on wikipedia or if wikipedia does something to undermine it if wikipedia says this thing is not credible or this thing is pseudoscience whatever other whatever else they want to say about it whatever they they feel is relevant to that point of reference but uh, but yeah speaking of being in college too you know it's, it's funny because you have certain experiences that you remember where it was the first time you ever heard about something. And to somebody else, it was just a part of their world. And I still have this experience. This is probably 2000, it was near the end of college. And keep in mind, I went to the Evergreen State College and notoriously far left school. And I, of course, didn't fit in with that reputation but it was a notoriously far left school and a lot of the conversation leaned that way a lot of your social interaction leaned that way a lot of a lot of the ideas that you came into contact with you know existed on that end of the social and political spectrum but still you're not going to get everything and that just shows you how times change because i think this was probably around 2007 or 2008 maybe 2009 even i, I might have graduated cuz my girlfriend was still going to the school and she worked for the school and one day she had gone to a coworker's birthday party at Red Robin and i picked her up afterward it was it was a birthday party for this girl that she worked with and i was like well how was the party how was the party and she said well it was a little awkward cuz you know i don't i don't remember this girl's name but she was basically let's call her birthday girl and it's accurate she's the birthday girl she was like well the birthday girl you know it was a little awkward cuz you know several of her lovers were there and i i thought I, I just was like what do you mean i'm i'm not a fan of the word lover lover what do you mean her lovers were there no but uh I was just like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, well, she's Polly. She's Polly." And in my mind, that's P-A-U-L-Y. But no, she's she's Polly, And I was like, "What? what is that? She's like polyamorous. You know, she has multiple lovers. And several of these guys were there at her birthday. They were all there together. And it was awkward as a result. And so that was completely new to me. But my girlfriend at the time, who was much more immersed in, you know, liberalism and all this stuff, like that was an idea she was very familiar with. And she said it to me as if like, I should know it, not in a condescending way, but just like to her, that was a point of reference she had. Like, there are people who are this thing called polyamorous. And yeah, I know that people sleep around. I know that people have relations with multiple people at the same time. I know what bigamy is. Oh, you should have told, is it kind of like bigamy? (laughs) You know, I would have known what that is. You know, it's not like I was totally ignorant. What do you mean? What you're telling me is that one person can have romantic or sexual relations with more than one person in a given period and maintain those relationships? You know, it's not like that idea was totally foreign to me but i just i I never thought about it being a thing that you you would call yourself, and now this is a all over the place I mean you can't even really get online without seeing a reference to polyamory your grandpa your grandma they know what polyamory is you come across it constantly, but at that time, even though I was you know uh of my generation a millennial. The main millennial, even though I was the main millennial, and I, I used the internet, I w- had gone to a, a far-left school, I had never heard of polyamory before. I'd never heard it explained that way. But to people who, you know, to that circle of people, it was something they all knew about, and it was, it was just talked about casually, even though... Even though my girlfriend at the time said, oh, you know, it was really awkward because her her lovers were there. It was still, the idea of it was not totally foreign to her. And I had to do some math in my head because the girl she was referring to was this quiet, nerdy girl, which it turns out, I think, actually ends up happening a lot with these poly people. Uh, I think they, they often, sometimes they are just like these weird nerds. Uh, but in my mind, I was like that girl. Cause it, she just did not seem to fit the bill in my mind. And then of course, just the idea of that being something that you call yourself, that being an identity was just so foreign to me, but it was to my girlfriend. It was just like, yeah, she's Polly. It was a little awkward, a little awkward. She was Polly, awkward, Polly, awkward, poly. you know, it, to her, it was normal. It, maybe not normal, but it, to her, the idea was just something It, it was within her points of reference. It was a point of reference she had that I didn't have. And you think about what's gone on in the last 10 years with politics, where if it took me that long to hear about that idea, if, I, if that was my introduction to the word polyamory and the idea of it in being put into practice, you have to figure like what somebody who's 30 years older than me would think hearing that. And in the last, especially the last five years, but I would say the entire 2010 decade, a lot of older generations were introduced to stuff like that as if they should already know. Because the people that were telling them, who are millennials and Gen Zers, Gen Zer, Zers, uh, they had grown up reading about this stuff online and being part of these circles that talk about that kind of stuff. And a big example is the whole gender thing, where, you know, the idea of... Yeah, I mean, people were always aware of cross-dressing. They were always aware of transvestites. You know, maybe some people were aware that other people had surgical procedures, that other people were more committed, you could say, to, to becoming another gender. But that ramped up so quickly in the public sphere. Like that idea proliferated and got so much attention so quickly that a whole generation of people who learned about that in maybe their late teens, early 20s, and were part of social groups, especially online, that talked about that stuff all the time, they started to expect that everybody had that as a point of reference, that everybody knew somebody like that. That everybody was as familiar with the, with the conversation as they were. And because it, it had this moral shade to it, because it, it's brought up in this moral and ethical framework of accepting and supporting people like that, the fact that somebody might not know about it becomes almost an indictment of that person. Where it's like, oh, you don't know about this? Oh, you're just learning about this now, you ignorant... Uh, it, what are you, 60 years old or something? Oh, wait, you are? You're telling me you're 60 years old and you never heard of genderqueer? You know, It's that sort of idea where you can see where people who were very familiar with this idea and they were part of a generation that embraced it at least certain parts of that generation, were suddenly in this in this position where they're, I don't know, just assuming that everybody else has the same points of reference they do when it comes to these things. And that's created a lot of conflict because there's an assumption, and it's not just generational. I mean, it's regional. It's all kinds of things. And there's an assumption, though, that because they're part of this feedback loop that has been talking about that and has been committed to, you know, I don't know, I don't even know how to put it, but just committed to that idea, the idea that other people haven't doesn't just make them ignorant, but it makes them somehow responsible for some kind of injustice, especially if they're reluctant to interpret it. Because, I mean, you think about that thing with the polyamory, think about that thing with the polyamory. Uh, You think about that and, you know, my girlfriend, she didn't think I was an idiot for not knowing what that was. But in her mind, it was just something you know about. It was just something that you know about in 2008, whatever year that was. But she easily could have responded with like, what do you mean you don't know? Oh, so you think, oh, because you don't know and you're acting surprised by polyamory, That must mean you think that marriage is between man and a woman and uh, you can never get divorced and, you know, uh, people should be limited to one partner throughout their entire lifetime, huh? Huh? You know, she easily could have gone there with it. And that sounds ridiculous, the idea of someone responding that way, but that is how people respond often now because they are so comfortable with a certain set of ideas. They are so comfortable with their own points of reference, and that is reinforced by the same points of reference that their friends have and these strangers that they interact with online, and not just strangers they interact with online, but strangers who they interact with because they share their beliefs. Because that's something that's changed as well, where you know, with forums, because you know, people have always fought on the internet. Turns out people have a need to fight and argue, and there's conflict. And, you know, I remember going to forums, and you would come across, even within a certain interest, you would come across a diverse set of views, and people would often fight, and some of it was for fun, some of it was serious. But it was very difficult to—at least this is my memory—it was very difficult in those days to find a place where everybody agreed with each other down the line. You know, there wasn't really a, a checklist— And I I do think that that early phase of the Internet had a stronger sense of individuality, too, where the sorts of people who are finding the sorts of people who are interested in going online and interacting with strangers, whether it's related to some sort of niche interest, you know, for me, it was music or whether it's just people who just found some random place to talk. The sort of person who, in the late 90s or even early 2000s, who went to some weird website every night to interact with strangers, that itself was eccentric. When you compare what the mainstream of society was doing at that time, that's that's kind of an eccentric behavior. The idea of interacting with people... In this totally immaterial way, I mean, yeah, you're using material devices, you know, and you're still a person in a body, but it's like these are people you're not seeing, and you're only existing in the abstract, really, where you're only communicating through ideas and symbols, that's all you know, you're not even handwriting letters, that itself, it's, it kind of made you an eccentric And as a result, there were, I feel like there was a stronger sense of individualism. And I do remember a more wide diversity of views. And this isn't me being like, Oh, the internet was so much better. (laughs) Although I do feel that way. I do feel that way. But I'm not trying to make that point here. Um, I'm just making the point that I I think that you were less likely to find that sort of feedback loop that is all too common today. And there was no blocking of people. I guess on AOL Instant Messenger, you could block somebody who was annoying you, that sort of thing. But, you know, for the most part, there wasn't this service that allows you to block somebody. You didn't follow people. You go to a forum. It's just an open forum. You know, there wasn't really a way, at least then, to block another user. If you had a problem, you either had to ignore it or just fight. Um So in that way, you weren't getting this feedback loop of ideas that has become all too common now. And that feedback loop has led people to believe that their points of reference are just the standard and that everybody knows them. And to not know them is somehow suspect, that that's somehow somehow opposed to those points of reference. And it's where the word ignorant gets abused, because I mean, yeah, ignorant. Yeah, the word ignore is in there, which makes it sound like, oh, you're deliberately ignoring this piece of information. You're deliberately ignoring these points of reference. But I don't think it. Ha- I don't think ignorance is malicious in many cases. I think ignorance is helpful, you know. And you never hear that. But uh, I think ignorance is helpful in that when there is an abundance of information you do have to choose to ignore certain pieces of information and it's malicious to be ignorant to something like it's 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 one thing to be to let me try to phrase this the right way it's one thing to judge something and then ignore it Like when ignorance becomes a judgment where it's like, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to overlook that. I'm going to put that out of my mind because I hate it. Because I don't think it's valid. And there's a lot of that from all kinds of people. We all do it. But I think there's another, like a more healthy version of ignorance, which is just that I can only process so much. I can only hold so much at any given time that I do have to make certain decisions to let go of certain ideas and it might not be some deliberate process like you're going through a list I'm going to think about this idea think about this idea I'm going to oh, I don't have room for this idea in my head I'll better, I throw it out it's like you're deleting files or something you know it's not even like that but it's just I think unconsciously you do ignore things and even though you might not be completely aware of it you kind of know You kind of know that you just don't have space for that thing, so you avoid it. But it's not necessarily a judgment. Because I'm ignorant to a lot of things that I actually peripherally know a little bit about, but I remain ignorant because I just know that I don't need that. It's not going to serve me, and it's not going to serve that thing for me to care about it. And there's other stuff that requires my attention, my precious awareness um, and because the word ignorant has has just become so pejorative, maybe it always has been. It uh, you know it's hard to it's hard to you know frame it the right way. It's hard to explain it the way I want to explain it. I'm too ignorant to explain what healthy ignorance is. But it's it's it just it's what happens when there's an overabundance of information. When you can only focus on so many things and absorb so many things. You inevitably have to use some sort of filter system, and that involves ignoring certain things. That involves letting certain things go, even though you might come into contact with them. You know, you can only champion so many causes, for one. And there's this idea that if you don't champion a certain cause, you are not only ignorant, but somehow a, a malicious entity. And I don't know, I just, I don't find much value in that way of thinking, where if you don't care about what I care about, you're actively trying to hurt what I care about. And it's like, well, no, I'm not, you know, and and part of it might just be, I don't have the same points of reference you have back to that. You know, that's the theme of this episode is points of reference and a lot of it does come down to that. And, you know, as I was mentioning, though, like people being introduced to new ideas in the last five to ten years. And, you know, our natural tendency is to be a little reluctant or resistant to just take someone's word for something. You know, it's, we're a little bit, we give a little, even if we don't, even if you don't give straight up pushback, it's like you're not necessarily going to include something in your inner Bible, Because one person told you about it. Or even five people told you about it. It takes some time. And as there's been this abundance of information. And everything has been politicized. There's this expectation that you need to take it in now. You were ignorant before. And now that you've heard of this thing. And me and my people are so passionate about it. You need to join us in this cause. And if you're not with us, you're against us. You know, there's that idea. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that's helpful. And it gets into the weak link, strong link thing again, where, you know, pushing people to join. And in doing so, you recruit those weak links rather than the strong links who have found... Those points of reference on their own, or even if you gave them the points of reference, they process those points of reference on their own, and that's always going to make someone stronger. Again, when someone does their own work, when someone does the math themselves, they understand. <laughs> you know, I am using a math reference. I don't even know. How ma- I don't even know how math works. I really don't. But it's, you know, it's why teachers want you to show the work on even a math equation. Because they know that you understand it. And you're not cheating. You're not cheating. And th- the reality is when you want people to join your cause who haven't processed it on their own terms... And they just go along with whatever the catchphrase is, whatever the slogan is. That's sort of like cheating. They're shouting the answer to the equation without knowing how you even get there. And that's why it's so important to process the points of reference on your own. And to understand that not everybody has the same points of reference. And when somebody has a different answer from you, it's very easy to say, like, you're wrong. But it's like they might have done an equation that involves completely different symbols and numbers from the equation you did. They might have completely different points of reference. Even if the equation is the same, even if it's the same algebraic equation, they might have filled in those, you know, they might have filled in the gaps with different numbers with different points of reference and as a result you can't judge their answer you can and you will inevitably judge certain answers but it's like you can't know exactly what their points of reference are you don't know what Nick at night shows they watched even if you both watch Nick at night even if you and I both watch Nick at night oh you you watch Nick at night it's me too. What'd you watch? Oh, you watched Green Acres? I never watched that. I watched Newhart. Even just that can <laughs> give you an entirely different worldview. I mean, you think about things when you have a super. You, when you when you should. I mean, I talked about it when I when I talked about going to the grocery store. <laughs> One of the many times I talk about going to the grocery store. But there was a guy from a a fairly well known local metal band behind me in line who I don't know I've heard of him he's I doubt he's ever heard of me I mean he would have no reason to but I was aware of who he was and and I, I just thought it was funny that we are two people who on paper probably have similar interests but in reality couldn't be further apart and it's the same thing for just having an interest I mean you think about telling somebody like oh I'm into metal I'm into heavy metal What bands you like? Oh, uh, Morbid Angel. And someone's like, oh, I'm into, uh, Avenged Avenged Sevenfolded. And I would, I have no idea what that is. Like, I have an idea. I have a very general idea. I don't know what they sound like. I have a general idea, and it's very far away from anything that I've ever even been remotely interested in. And I'm not even saying that as a judgment. It's just simply, like, I know that it exists and i think that they i i as far as i know they would be considered somewhere in the metal genre adjacent to metal metal adjacent as far as i know i mean and i'm going to avoid saying anything i am you know i'm be, i'm not going to sit here and criticize a band like that they just they don't even enter into my mind even though i'm talking about them so clearly clearly i'm lying because they do enter into my mind but I was just trying to use an example of something that is not Morbid Angel. And even though you have this shared interest in metal guitar, like your actual points of reference are so different. Like you, maybe you can find common ground beyond that, but chances are just using those as points of reference, like yeah, there's probably somebody out there who loves both Morbid Angel and Avenged Sevenfolded. Uh, But there's probably someone out there who is a fan of both those bands. That person probably exists. And it's me. It's me. No, but uh, that person exists for sure. But it's like chances are most people with those points of reference, those different points of reference, are not going to have the same taste, even though in theory to to an alien, they're going to think that they're into the same thing. Oh, they're both into heavy metal or Nick at Night. You know, it's like, oh, you watched this on Nick at Night while I watched this. We actually don't have any, we, aside from the fact that we watched the same channel, we watched completely different things. And that makes us, you know, that's a different point of reference. But even within those points of reference, there are points of reference. (laughs) It just goes deeper. It just gets more and more uh, reductionist where it's like, well... Yeah, we watched different shows on Nick at Night, but within those shows, those shows made di- made reference to different cultural events that were playing out at the time, and th- so it just goes deeper and deeper. And next thing you know, you're at war. We watch Newhart. You watch Green Acres. Why didn't you watch Newhart? <laughs> oh, you watched Green Acres, and why didn't you watch Newhart? They weren't even on at the same time. And they say to you, well, you watched New Heart, but why didn't you watch Green Acres? You know, so you can really, uh, you can find different points of reference w- even within the same point of reference and find out that you're actually farther apart than you even imagine. And that happens a lot. Like, that happens when people try to introduce you and they try to, like, be a matchmaker They'll say things like, oh, hey, I I know you're going to be the best of friends because you like Nick at Night, and you like Nick at Night. And then you sit down with that person, and it's like, what were your favorite shows? And they watched completely different Nick at Night shows. And if you're a mature adult, you're going to find common ground. But we often, and that's the funny thing about being a mature adult, not to go too wild here, but the funny thing about being a mature adult is that you go in and out of maturity constantly. You know, people talk about being a mature adult like it's a static position. Like, oh, once you're a mature adult, you stay a mature adult. Oh, except when you you have fun like a kid. Oh, he's such a mature adult, but when he goes to the miniature golf course, he's like a big kid. People can accept that, but then when you become petty, (laughs) people... People can people can be like, oh yeah, oh it's totally understandable when an adult male has fun when he's playing laser tag sometimes, but when he becomes a petty tantrum throwing child now and again, you know uh, something's wrong with him. No, but the reality is, you know, as the more that I learn about mature adults, the more I learn that you just you go in and out of maturity constantly. And even though you should be able to find common ground, even though just having a broad set of points of reference, a broad set of references, even having those, you sometimes will get petty about it. And then when it plays out into some moral or ethical framework, things get real bad. They can be good, too, because, I mean, you can find... Even if you have different points of reference, you can find some sort of moral or ethical, you know, framework to relate to somebody by, like, oh, at the end of the day, we see things differently, but we have some of the same values when it comes to just maintaining a stable civilization. Because people do cooperate. You know, it's very easy to look at the lack of cooperation, to look at the conflict, and not see the cooperation that is going on constantly. Because history is more a product of cooperation than it is conflict, in my opinion. I believe if conflict was, I believe if conflict outweighed cooperation, that we wouldn't be here. Because there is so much opportunity for conflict. And we have these examples of horrible conflicts throughout history, and they've happened all the time. So it's very easy to think that that is the standard. But the fact that those conflicts end at all, the fact that there are times of relative peace, the fact that there is peace simultaneously happening alongside of conflict, around conflict, even inside of conflict, shows to me that there is a greater history of cooperation than conflict, even though you have both. You know, you can't say that there is only cooperation. Oh, look, at there's only cooperation. All wars are made up. Every war that you read about was made up. No, I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that human beings trend toward cooperation, even though it can be difficult to achieve. But it's done through common points of reference. It can just be hard to remember that you don't share all of the same points of reference, and because you don't have all the same points of reference, you can end up focusing on the points of reference that are different. But even though we do these different equations, and we sometimes get different answers, even though we're doing different equations in our mind based on the points of reference that we have, and that can make our answers to those equations different, we often do come up with the same answers, even with different points of reference. So that's something to keep in mind, is that even with different sets of information, human beings often come up with something similar, if not the same. But you have to acknowledge that when it happens. You have to acknowledge when different points of references produce the same answer. And that is amazing when it happens. And that's what I'm looking for here. And that's why I try to stay aware, stay aware of how my points of reference might differ from somebody else's. Because if I'm not aware of that, you know, I won't even be willing to look at that common answer. You know, because if I think that I'm right, if I think that my points of reference are the only right points of reference, I'm not even going to be looking at the right answer because I think I'm already right. So to even be prepared to find some common right answer that you can share with somebody who's different, who sees things differently, who has different points of reference, in order to even recognize that there is a common right answer. You can't go into it thinking, my points of reference are the only points of reference. They're the the only points of reference that matter. And they're Wikipedia approved. Because something that should really blow people's minds is that Both science and pseudoscience can even produce the same result. And somebody would say that itself is pseudoscience. And I would say that's true. It's pseudoscience and it's also science. (laughs) The fact that science and pseudoscience can at times produce the same result is itself both science and pseudoscience. And I don't expect anybody to understand what I'm talking about there. I have to think about that one a little more myself, but I believe it's true. And I believe there is a common right answer that you can find regardless of what your points of reference are.